on. Mac on the Rack, how are you? How are you, sir? Thank you for calling Memorial Day. Uh, my previous show, uh, Concrete Conservative Show, had to be canceled because my guest was flooded out in Miami and couldn't come out to Key Biscayne. A congressional candidate, Maria Elvira Salazar, we finally got her to to uh, to come and speak to us at Key Biscayne. She used to be a resident out here, and we were looking forward to asking her those uh, incredible questions on what dif- you know differentiates her from um, the existing incumbent congressman, Mrs. Shalala or Shalalalala, as us conservatives like to say. So. Uh, for the next 30 seconds uh, to start our show here on the Statues and Story Show with Adam Levinson and yours truly, WSQF 94.5, I would like to take a, a, you know, a moment of silence, a pause for our, our great warriors and uh, give us uh, 30 second, uh, you know, 36 uh, seconds here. Adam, how are you today? I am doing very well, and as you pointed out, it is Memorial Day. Is that TAPS? Is that the formal name of that uh, trumpet? Absolutely. The greatest 30 seconds, 36 seconds of sound I've ever heard in my life. It's just, uh, there's nothing more profound than that. I mean, it really is a, a, a an incredible exhibition of, uh, I used to, one time used to know the history of it. Obviously, I saw, I saw the movie where probably the first time I can recollect, you know, having the taps take in but uh, I would uh, I wish you knew the history of taps uh, please do tell us if, if you do know because I can't I'm afraid to recall the history of taps but uh, but I know it was a profound story and uh, I just think it's so incredible that people have really put their skin on the line to defend our freedoms so far back there was someone I was saying earlier there's a family named Horton in the Georgia area who's had successive military uh, veterans died in battle since the War of Independence, all the way same to family. Uh, in the same family. They're all bunched up together in the in the cemetery, and uh, apparently, it's so incredible that the military makes sure that they stay together in the in the general plots to each other. You know, they're close together, and uh, this veteran was talking about indiscriminately coming upon this family and and just recorded the dates on the tombstones and, and they go as far back as the 1700. So it's really remarkable to, to think that there's family lineage where they all feel compelled to die for their country. It's pretty amazing. So anyway, tell us about the 12th Amendment. So what we're going to do tonight, and just to continue on that conversation about Memorial Day, so as listeners know from prior uh, discussions, I think a year ago, we talked about the difference between Memorial Day versus Veterans Day, and then a highly 
high-level summary, Memorial Day is specifically memorizing or memorializing, rather, you know, those who passed, whereas Veterans Day applies to all veterans living and deceased. So that's the difference between the two holidays. And if we have time at the end of the hour, uh, folks can go to the Statutes and Stories website, <laughs> excuse me, and I uh, have a link which sort of solidifies and summarizes some of the history of the holidays and some of the old history of how the, you know, the American Continental Army was set up uh, and how it evolved and how the Marines were added and the Navy. So I've got some, some links talking about the history, but that'll be towards the end of the hour if we have time, because I don't want to repeat what we've done in other shows. So today, and, and you're right, Manny, the, the focus of today, and I just posted it about an hour ago on the website statutesandstories.com, is about the 12th Amendment and the election of 1800. And some people might say, well, Adam and Manny, why are you talking about the election of 1800? What does that have to do with Memorial Day commemorating those who've served? And the quick answer is, what is it that we're fighting for? What is it that America represents? And that's going to be the question that we're going to be answering today when we talk about the election of 1800. And the quick answer at a very high level, as I like to say, is in our system of democracy. And we are the first country really in the you know the modern world. Uh, you have to go back to a Greek and Roman times, maybe, where the, and we can even debate about what it meant in Greek and Roman times, where we had a peaceful transition of power. So who was the president and the first president? Everybody knows that's Washington. Right? Jorge. Right. Who was the second president? Um, that's, uh, what? Adams. Name. Adams is the second president. So Adams runs for re-election in the year 1800, and Adams runs against Jefferson. And loses. Okay. And loses. And when Jefferson wins, Jefferson is from a totally different political party. And some people refer to it as the Republican Party, or really the Democratic Republican Party, uh, which uh, came into ascendancy for 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 you know for a substantial period of time. I'd have to do the math to tell you how many years. But the next series of presidents after Jefferson were all in his mold. The, this is the Democratic Republicans. So after Jefferson, you have Madison, you have Monroe, and we can debate about what Quincy Adams was. But uh, you know, so you had a new party that comes into a sentence. And, and the reason and the connection between Memorial Day, although it's attenuated, and this election of 1800 is that ultimately in a democracy, you are fighting for, and what a democracy represents, is the ability of a peaceful transition of power. And there were doubts, which we'll get to today, whether or not during this election, when this new party gets swept in, whether or not, uh, and we'll give some examples of how two state militias were in the process of getting mobilized, and all throughout history, you have not had peaceful transitions of power. And many you can ask me later about, well, in Britain, they have a democracy, right? Nah. Right, and ask that question. Because they don't have a constitution. So that's right. So England did not have a written constitution. And they're not a series and, of states representing uh, collectively each other in, uh, in defense of enemies, foreign and domestic. And they're not a republic either, so. That's exactly right. They're not a republic. And here's the big difference between the, and one, at least one of the big differences between the English system and our system is that the king, and I don't pretend to be an expert on parliament and how England operates, and frankly, I'm not really, I don't really care too much about how England, how, how they do it, although they are a good, an ally, and you know, we love the English, you know, our, our system descended from the English, but the big difference that I'm talking about today is that in England, when, and you'd say, you know, they elect their prime minister, they don't have a president, but they No, elect but they elect it among their parties. And they elect among, and they've got more than two parties usually, but the big difference is that in England, 
uh, until modern times, and this is after our election of 1800, the king really controlled approximately one-fifth, as I understand it, through patronage of the, uh, of the parliament, meaning that even though you would have an election where one party might win and defeat and even trounce and even have a landslide, that was not enough unless the king was willing to support the transfer from one to another. So at the end of the day, the king had his finger on the scale, or the queen had their finger on the scale, so you could not necessarily have a transition unless the king was willing to allow it to happen. So you might have elections in England where one party uh, you know, would have a big impact on the, the transitions and the, you know, the, the weighting and the number of seats. But ultimately, again, as some historians will describe, we were the first system in the year 1800 where a election, a democratic election, decides to bring in a whole new party with a whole new agenda. And that's something else we'll talk about tonight, which is the differences between the Federalists, and that's the party of Adams and Jefferson and Hamilton, and, and the party of uh, Jefferson and Madison and Monroe, so the anti-Federalists, sorry, with the Democrat-Republicans. So we can get into some of those differences. And I invite everybody, because I just finished posting it, as I said, about an hour ago, go to statutesandstories.com, and you can look on the most recent blog post. And I'm going to read some of it as we go through it today. But I've just teased up what the issues are. Why is this election of 1800 important? And, and you asked the question at the outset, Manny, what, what does the 12th Amendment have to do with the election of 1800? So everybody knows the Bill of Rights was Amendments 1 to 10, and the Bill of Rights was adopted uh, you know, in that first Congress after the first Congress was, was elected and, and came into, at the time it was, it was New York, was where the first Congress met. They all agreed through Madison uh, to agree to send to the states the, the it was originally 12 amendments, and they sort of reduced it to only 10. Only 10 were, were ratified by the states. So what's the story with the 12th Amendment? And the answer is there are issues that are going to come up in the election of 1800 which expose problems with the, the Electoral College. And that's something else we can talk about is, you know, what's the difference and what's the— Leave it alone. Word? I know you want to get rid of the Electoral College. I'm not going to let you. So there are there are questions about the Electoral College, and I don't know that there's a right answer, but there are perpetual There answers. is no right answer. It's leave it alone. That's the only answer here on Statues and Stories. So in the year 1800, and to a, to a lesser extent, in the prior election, 1796, you began to see problems. And some of this, when, when people hear tonight and understand what happened, they're going to scratch their heads and they're going to say, give me a break. Is this, is this possible? How could that have happened? And the answer is the Electoral College, as it was originally conceived, right, uh, acted differently than, and, and let me get more background because that's not going to make too much sense, but, you know, when Washington was the first president, those who met in Philadelphia that summer in 1787 didn't think that you would have, they didn't comprehend the idea of different political parties. They thought that the person who would get elected president would be, you know, the wisest and the best and the, the, the you know, the, the, the most appropriate choice who would do best for the country. And the vice president was the person who got the second highest number of votes. So they didn't understand understand that as the party system developed with Hamilton and the Federalists and Jefferson and the Democrat Republicans, that you would have a situation where, you know, and this is what happened, by the way, in the election of 1796. So the prior four years, you end up having Adams win to replace, uh, you know, what's his name? Washington didn't run. He only ran for two terms. So in 1796, Adams becomes president and Jefferson becomes vice president. And the problem in 1796 was that Adams was a Federalist and Jefferson is working on putting together his own party. So you had two rivals. Think about that for a second. Yeah, one sabotaging the other, and yet somehow on somewhat friend friendly terms, but very cognizant of each other's motives. But that's 
exactly the status in 1796. You had a president from one party that was Adams, and you had Jefferson, his vice president, and I won't call it yet a party. It was an evolving, emerging party that would become Jefferson's Democrat-Republican party. So the two worked together, but you know they had fundamental disagreements on certain points. So imagine we could give names today. You know, if you had Trump as the president and you had, you know, who, who ran against Trump? You had Hillary Clinton. You could have Hillary Clinton as the vice president and Trump as the president it, under that original situation from the first original version of, and this is coming, by the way, from the Constitution, from Article 2 is the executive. Section 1 talks about how a president gets elected. So that was the issue that came up in 1796. And the... Uh, so tell us how it was resolved. How is it that we became president and vice president on a single ticket? Uh, was there a scandal that broke out? I would, I would like the audience to know the details if you could do it really briefly and not really get off the subject. So that is the main discussion for today. So 1796 was you had a president from one party, a vice president from another, and they did not fix that after 1796. They had the election of 1800. And wait till you see, which I'll be talking about tonight, what happened in 1800. So let me give the lay of the land. So 1800, Adams, and we already mentioned, Adams is the president. He'd been elected in 1796. And he, uh, when he won originally, he only won by one vote. <laughs> so he only won by a handful of votes. I want to say it was probably three votes that Adams beat Jefferson. And there, we can go into more detail about why it was so close in 1796. But now 1800 happens, the election of 1800. So now Adams is running for re-election. And guess who's running against him? His vice president is running against him in 1800. So you have a more defined distinction between the two parties. So you have Adams, who was the head of the Federalist Party, but there's another group of Federalists who are really led by Hamilton, and these are referred to as the high Federalists, not because of what they do recreationally, but because they're, they're, they're more, and I don't even like to use the conservative, the word conservative here, but they, you know, they're more focused on Hamilton's agenda of a financial system and a banking system, whereas um, Adams was more of a moderate, uh, and you know there were some things he agreed with the Democrat-Republicans on. So you had these sectional differences, and mainly the Federalists are based in the Northeast, in the New England area, Massachusetts, New York, etc. And the Democrat-Republicans are doing well in the South and in the West. That, that's where Jefferson is building his electoral base. So in 1800, the, the parties realized that instead of having a president and a vice president getting elected from different parties, we're going to, for the first time in 1800, come up with a system where the party will choose the president and the vice president. So Jefferson and it's not exactly clear how they made this decision, but Jefferson winds up aligning with Aaron Burr. So Jefferson is going to be running for president, and Burr is going to be running as the Democrat-Republican under under Jefferson as his vice presidential. So this is the first time in 1800 you get a ticket. So who's going to be on the Federalist ticket? So the answer is Adams, who was the president, is running for re-election. And he can't have Jefferson because Jefferson's running against him. So who is Adams' ticket going to be, the Federalist ticket? And the quick answer is they – let me give some background here. So – what had happened in the months leading up into the election is that there were important statewide elections. And one of the reasons that Adams won in the 1796 time period is he won New York. But what wound up happening between 1796 and 1800 is Burr started campaigning as a Democrat-Republican. And Burr was – was, and here's more background – that in this time period, you know, Jefferson is a gentleman. And we can talk about what is a gentleman from Virginia. And Adams is sort of a statesman. So they sort of considered themselves to be above the fray. They didn't campaign. They had surrogates and friends and others campaign for them. But they wouldn't, you know, drop down and uh, they didn't want to consider themselves as politicians. It was viewed as, you know, not a gentlemanly thing to do. But 
Burr didn't see it that way. So Burr spent the early period in, in the year 1800, late 1799, actively building relationships and actively campaigning and making sure that people were, you know, who were had difficulty you know, with transportation uh, had a carriage to bring them to the pole. So Burr is very successful. In so the busing air. people to the pole started a long time ago. <laughs> Burr was doing it. Burr was doing it. Uh, and he understood. He was reaching out to minority groups. And when I say minority groups, this could be an Irish community, right? Or this could be, and we could talk about why the Irish became important and why the Irish don't necessarily agree with the Federalists. Uh, this is in the 1800 time frame. So Burr is building constituencies, and he's engaging in modern politicking, which others would sort of swear off as being beneath them. So what happened in the, the, the local elections in New York was that the Democrat-Republicans under Burr wind up winning the New York legislature. And when that happens, it becomes clear that Adams, if he's going to win, because he's going to lose New York, because back then, and, and it was a little different in different states, but in New York, it wasn't the votes of the electors, of the popular vote, that would determine who gets elected president. It would be the state legislature who would get to decide who the electoral votes would be cast for. So the state legislature, when the New York legislature switches from being controlled by federalists to being controlled by Democrat-Republicans, that's a big signal signal to Adams that you know, he's going to have to make a vote in other states. So this is where Adams begins to realize, who do I pick as my vice president, or who, who do we as federalists pick? And the two main states, today we call them the battleground states, they knew were going to be Philadelphia, which is Pennsylvania, and they knew South Carolina had a lot of votes that were in play. So who does... Adams pick as his vice president, and he had to choose either pick someone from Pennsylvania or pick someone from South Carolina, and he chooses a name that most Americans today won't recognize, but the Charles Cotworth Pickney is a South Carolina Federalist. So that's who's going to be on the Federalist ticket, Adams and Pinckney from South Carolina. I would have never known. Right, and he runs, by the way, he's on the ballot for, for, I think, three presidential elections, and he's never elected president, Charles Pinckney from South Carolina. So what's the point? The point is you've got Washington has you know, retired, and actually he dies in the year 1800, and Adams and Pinckney are going to be running in 1800 against Jefferson and Burr. And the Federalists are smart because they understand, and this is going to be the problem. I'll, I'll skip ahead to tell you what the problem is. Uh, so Adams does not, he campaigns, or at least his surrogates campaign, and he, he does well in Pennsylvania, he does well in some of the other states, but not well enough to make up for the loss of New York. Uh, and also, there are now 16 states, and the Democrat-Republicans do well in Tennessee, which is a brand-new state, basically, and uh, I'm trying to think what other new state had just come in. So uh, originally, there were 13, and now we have 16 states. I think it's Vermont. There's another new state that comes in. So at the end of the day, Washington is gone. He, he's passed away, and Jefferson gets 73 electoral votes, and Adams only gets 65, which means Jefferson wins. But there's a problem. So even though Jefferson and the Democrat-Republicans win, this is the problem. And I want to step back to make sure everybody follows what the problem is. And you might say, well, if Jefferson got 73 and Adams only got 65, what's the problem? And the problem is that Jefferson got 73 and Burr got 73. So both the president and vice president, who were running as president and vice president in a way, tied so what happens when you have a tie and what the Constitution said then it goes to the House goes to the House. And this has happened twice, if I'm not mistaken, in American history. We can talk about the second time when it happened. So Adams got 65. And interestingly, his vice presidential candidate, which was Pinckney, got 64. And 
the reason he got one less, 64, is because the Federalists knew, don't have a tie on your candidate because that's going to cause a problem. So they, they arranged in advance that one person or one elector would vote for John Jay. So Jay got one vote in 1800, Adams got 65, and Pinckney got 64, and they lose because Jefferson got 73. But the problem, and repeat it for everybody, what's the problem? Jefferson has 73, and who else has 73? Burr. Burr. So... You know, if Burr were a man who had integrity, some might say, he would say, hey, I'm running basically as the vice president. So even though there's a, there's a tie, I'm going to accede and allow Jefferson to be president and I'll be his vice president. Right. That's something that you might expect most people would do, but not Aaron Burr. Aaron Burr, who and we can talk about Burr, and I've got some great quotes for the end of the hour. So give me a 10 minute warning and I'm going to read you some quotes about Burr. And by the way, who, who is Burr's biggest enemy or one of his biggest? Alexander enemies? Hamilton. I've got some great quotes, and you'll know who some of these are going to come from. So, and there's a sad result and sad end to that story. So, 73-73, it's a tie. So, as you said, it gets thrown over into the House of Representatives. Now, what, what the audience should know is that if they agree to create tickets, why do their why do their uh, why do they have to go tie to stay to keep the ticket? Why? I, that's what I don't understand. Okay, excellent question, and I, I didn't adequately summarize it, so it doesn't surprise me that I, I confuse that people. So here is the, the answer. It's a good question. So the way the Constitution was written that until it was changed with the 12th Amendment was that each elector for the Electoral College would vote twice. You would vote for a president and you'd vote for a vice president. And that's in writing. And that's, what the, that's how the Constitution was originally set up, that each elector to the Electoral College would get two votes. You would vote for a president and you'd vote for a vice president. And the Federalists did it correctly. They made sure that each of their 65 electors voted for Adams as vice president, as president and voted for one of them did not vote for Pinckney. So they did it correctly. The problem was that the Democrat-Republicans, the Jefferson group, they all voted for their two votes. They voted one vote for Jefferson and one vote for for um, for Burr, which created the tie. You understand what the issue is? And the reason why the Constitution was written that way is, and there's another detail I left out, which is because of an issue of what's called the favored sons, uh, and there may be another name for that, but um, the way that the Electoral College was originally set up is you could not vote for two people from the same state. So if the president who is running as Jefferson is from Virginia, then you could not vote for another Virginian for vice president. So that was intended to get some regional diversification, that a big state could monopolize president and vice president. So again, this is the problem, that the electors to the Electoral College each got two votes. And, and they usually came the from the elected in the state houses, the electors themselves. So the electors in the Electoral College, which we still have today, but we've changed it a little bit. Yeah, we allow citizens to be electors. So, so back then, and I'm not sure exactly, each state would get to decide who they wanted to be their electors. And the electors, and it depended upon the particular state, there were different requirements. But the, the issue and the, the really the bugs in the system that I'm trying to highlight here is that each elector of the Electoral College uh, got two votes, and one for president, one for vice president. And that's really going to answer the question about what, what we fix with the 12th Amendment. Uh, but before I get into how the 12th Amendment fixes it, and I think people will figure it out, let's continue with the story. So... 
Adams loses. He only gets 65. His vice president gets 64. But Jefferson is tied with Aaron Burr, 73-73. So it gets pulled over to the House of Representatives. And this is another glitch or defect. Uh, and again, people are going to scratch their head and say, wow, that's pretty crazy that this could happen. But the way it was set up, the House would have to make the decision. But the House, the new House doesn't come in until the March time frame. And it's only the January time frame, because remember, you have your elections in November. So that the party that gets to decide in the House, the Federalists control the House. Ah. So paint this out with me. This is the scenario. The Federalists lose the election. Adams loses. Right, but the House, controlled by the Federalists, gets to pick between Adam, between Jefferson and Burr. Unbelievable. Tied seventy-three, seventy-three. So here's where it gets even more interesting. Uh, they go on the first ballot, and I, I can give you the states if you're interested. And, and instead of me going through the, the gory details, I'm just going to tell people go to statutesandstories.com, and you can see the breakdown of how the states align, and you can see some more of the, the interesting, juicy gossip there. So they wind up going on the first ballot, and it's another tie. They go, I think it's 26 ballots on the on the same day. And let me give see, you. This is worse than the Pope. <laughs> You know what? There's some similarities, but they're not burning. What are they? What are they burn in um, in the Vatican when it, when they have a new pope? The, the actual the, the actual uh, uh, paper. It's white. white. Um, uh, yeah, they, it does have a name. You're absolutely right. But they they throw it in a furnace once they vote, so that it's it disappears into the history. That's not to be recorded, and they vote again. And then uh, when they uh, when they when there is a victor, the uh, the smoke changes color. So in other words, it goes from black to white because white is water. So holy water is evaporated through the furnace to show that there is a there is a victor. It doesn't say who wins, but uh, the black is the 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 votes that ne- nobody got the majority. So the, it's just paper being burned. So it's black coming out of the chimney. Um, and then when they when the, a pope is selected, it's it's now smoke water. You know, uh, white. And uh, I don't know the the word they use to actually actually make it white white because water itself isn't enough. Uh, there's a name for it, but we'll have to deal with it another day. Or keep on talking, and I'll Google it. <laughs> okay, well we'll circle back to that. Yeah. So, but but you're right that if they had sent smoke signals, because everyone is with bated breath. This is February. It's 1800, February 11th. It goes to the House of Representatives, and the House casts the first vote. And they don't do it by member of the House. They do it by this is in the Constitution. They do it by state. So New York, one of the bigger states, gets one vote, and Little Rhode Island, a much smaller state, gets one vote. So there were 16 states, and you need a majority. You need, uh, the way I think the math works, you needed nine of the states to have a majority. Um, see, eight and eight would be 16, so you needed nine to have a majority of the 16 states, and each state gets only one vote, so it's not based on population when the vote goes over into the House. It's based on state. Um, so what's the point? So the point is February 11th to do the first vote, and uh, it comes out another tie between Adam, sorry, I keep saying Adams, between Burr and between Jefferson. They conduct, I want to say, 26 votes that same day, and each vote is indecisive, and they can't break the tie between Jefferson and his vice president, Aaron Burr. So before I go into how they went up resolving it, think about this for a second. You know, what's going to motivate a Federalist who's in the House and why should they vote for Jefferson? Why should they vote for Burr? Because they can't vote for Adam. It's going to have to be one of those two, Jefferson or Burr. And many of them realize that Burr is is less ideological, meaning that he's less committed to his views. In other words, they think they could probably work better with Burr. 
is better, you know, Burr is more willing to you know, grease the wheels and, uh, you know, be more compromising in, in things that Burr, in other words, Burr looks out for Burr. So some of the Federalists realize that, uh, you know, we don't want Jefferson, let's go with Burr. On the other hand, uh, there are some, and this is where Alexander Hamilton is going to come into play, who realize that Jefferson at the end of the day is a better leader. And we're going to give some quotes about Burr, that uh, you know, Jefferson is a man of principle. Jefferson is a man who is looking out for the country, whereas Burr may have other objectives in mind. So it, the first day, they think, I think it's 26 ballots that they go through and read it on the website. Uh, so basically for an entire week, they're voting on a regular basis and they can't break the deadlock. You need to get nine states to support either Jefferson or Burr. And then finally, Hal Hamilton comes out and he is able to convince other Federalists, because they're the ones who are going to be making the decision on who's going to win. He convinces other Federalists that uh, Burr is not the one who should be elected president. And uh, one of the states, and this is starts on February 11th, and there's a bad snowstorm. And as it turns out, members of the House stay in the House. They bring in cots. They eat and they sleep in the, in the House of Representatives. And for this entire week, they are totally deadlocked. And by the way, the inauguration is supposed to be basically in two weeks from when this process starts on February 11th. And they don't have a winner yet because they're in continual deadlock for the entire week. And then it's not until February 17th they finally get the switch. And let me read you what winds up happening. Finally, on the 36th ballot on February 17th, the single Delaware Federalist, and I, I'll give you his name if you want, he switches to cast a blank ballot along with some other Federalists from Maryland and Vermont. And as a consequence, Jefferson wins 10, Burr has four, and two states are basically abstaining, so Jefferson wins the election. Uh, and this is because Hamilton throws support for Jefferson to support Jefferson. And uh, there also may have been a deal worked out that Jefferson, some historians think, may have made a promise that he won't undermine and won't, you know, totally, uh, that's a good word for it, that he won't totally uh, repeal and uh, work to defeat the Federalist policies that have been put in place during Adams and Washington, for example, the banking system and the system to pay off the, you know, the debt to pay for uh, the pensions for, for the, um, you know, the national debt. And the, there's an issue we talked about, assuming state debt. So the federal government took on state debt, and now the federal government's going to pay for pensions for the Revolutionary War. So there's a big financial system that's put in place under Hamilton and, and Washington. And uh, Jefferson may have agreed, although he never admitted that he agreed to it. Uh, but there may be some truth to that, that Jefferson may have made a deal with the Federalists that he's not going to work to directly undermine the policies that were put in place by the prior administration. So then you get Jefferson elected, and that was the issue. So what if we just summarize? We've summarized that part of the problem with the original system that was set up in Article One, Section – sorry, Article 2, Section 1 of the Constitution – was that uh, they didn't contemplate there being parties, and you got two votes, and you could have a situation where the president was tied with his vice president. You could also have a situation where um, if the vice president's from a different party, you could have a president and a vice president from different parties. So they fix it in 1803 is when it gets introduced in Congress, and 1804 is when the 12th Amendment gets adopted. And we could talk about there were some who did not like the 12th Amendment. They wanted to keep it, and they didn't want to make all the changes that ultimately they made for the 12th Amendment. So what's the point? The point is that you know, there have been issues with the Electoral College for a while, but at the end of the day, that election was important because it demonstrated that our system, even though um, and it got a little hairy because for a week they couldn't decide who the president was going to be in the House, ultimately had a peaceful transition. And we've always had peaceful transitions in the American system, which is how it's intended to be. So does it all make sense about how the election happened? Because I want to go into some of the juicy details now. Yeah, it's it, what, what I find incredible is that the founders pretty much, uh, you know, get it right on so many issues. 
But I don't really understand that they didn't have the vision to understand that the country was naturally would grow and that a president and vice president could be elected from opposing parties sabotaging each other. So I don't understand where they failed to see that it had to be a ticket all along. What role did they really want for the vice president originally uh, for him to be serving separately from the president? That's what I never understood. You know, and it's hard to get into their heads. But, you know, from them, they sort of understood Washington, you know, the great, noble Washington. So and for them to think ahead that you could have a, uh, a leader in the emergence of political parties, that just wasn't on their radar. And the vice president was basically to secede or to accede and take over, you know, if anything happened to the president. And the vice president was in charge of the Senate but couldn't vote unless there was a tie. So the vice president didn't really have much of a role, and we can talk about that also. So this, we, we've just summarized, though, the election of 1800 and the defects which were co- corrected by the 12th Amendment. And we'll talk about how the 12th Amendment corrects it. So the 12th Amendment says that now, after the 12th Amendment was adopted in 1804 and ratified, instead of having each elector vote, twice for two different people, they vote separately. So that's really the big change. You vote separately, one for the vice president, one for president, and they run together as opposed to having two votes where the highest vote is for president and the second highest vote is for vice president. Now it's separate votes for vice president, separate votes for president, whereas the founders, the highest would be the the winner gets president and the loser gets vice president. So that's, that's the difference between the way they originally set it up and how we've now fixed it. But I want to spend a little bit of time on this election of 1800 because it's important because we had a peaceful transition, but it's also a low point because it was a very brutal and it was a very nasty election. And I think people will appreciate, you know, today when you read what's going on sometimes with the papers and some of the criticism and Twitter and everything else. Uh, wait, wait till you hear about uh, some of the, the mean-spirited nature of this election. Because they knew a lot was on the line. The Federalists didn't want to lose power, and the Democrat-Republicans uh, wanted enough already with the Federalists. They thought that they represented the majority of Americans. So go to statutesandstories.com, and I'm going to walk you through some of the, um, the background of the election. So I say it was a low point in civility for presidential elections. And even though Jefferson and Adams were cordial with each other and didn't actively campaign, and I can talk about how they campaigned indirectly, their surrogates were ruthless. And you started seeing the emergence of a lot more newspapers, and the newspapers were blatantly partisan. So today, you know, we can debate about, you know, are the newspapers, do they have an edge, do they have a bias? But back then, they were Federalist papers and they were Democrat-Republican papers. They didn't try to, you know, describe themselves as neutral or, you know, all the news that's fit to print. That's, for example, the, the, the motto of the New York Times. The Wall Street Journal is, uh, I forgot what their motto is, about how um, something about in the dark, you know, when, uh, when uh, I'll, I'll figure it out because I don't have it at my fingertips. But back then, the paper, it was rare that you have, it would have a paper that was trying to be objective. But the papers were unabashedly partisan for one side or another. There, there was no confusion that, you know, you were, you were buying the paper of, of your particular political party, right? So there, there wasn't a doubt about the, what paper you were reading. You knew up front what, what the objectives were. So here, here's some examples of what you would see in the paper. So Jefferson's critics labeled him, this is a quote, a mean-spirited, and I'm going to apologize for anybody who's listening, that don't take this the wrong way. This isn't me speaking. This is me just reading from a newspaper from the year 1800. So Jefferson was labeled as a mean-spirited son of a half-breed Indian squaw, (laughs) sired by a Virginia mulatto father. Oh, my God. You wanted to insult somebody in the year 1800, they were a half-breed Indian squaw, sired by a uh, mulatto father. That An was- incredible. A sired is like, you know, a horse. <laughs> 
that. You know, horse breeding. You called <laughs> Adams, right? So Adams, you love this one. Uh, so I'm going to give you some of the more colorful ones. And remember that they're, these are genteel politicians who don't attack each other. They let their surrogates do it, right? So uh, Adams, if you remember, had spent time as our ambassador to England. And, um, you know, because he's from Massachusetts, because he's from sort of um, – there are different words you can use to describe these, um, these, these Massachusetts families that date back, you know, to the time of the, the Mayflower. Uh, but the long story short, Adams, who spent a lot of time in England, um, you know, there was an accusation that he was trying to marry his daughter, I'm sorry, his son, to a daughter of King George III. And that's, I'm not saying that that's true, but it is true that the Federalists were more pro-British and the Democrat-Republicans, Jefferson, who spent time in France, were more pro-France or pro-French. So you did have this breakdown. And, of course, the Revolutionary War, the French were our allies. But after the French Revolution, you know, the British are fighting the French again, and Jefferson's party supports the French, and the Federalists, Washington, Adams, Hamilton, support the British or want to stay neutral. So here's some examples of uh, attacking Adams in the papers for being you know, too pro-English, being pro too pro-monarchy, or being an aristocrat. And here's a, a great quote that Adams was accused of being, quote, not me saying this, this is from the newspaper, being a hideous, and I have to pronounce this correctly, a hideous, hermaphroditical character, which was neither the force and with neither the force and firmness of a man nor the genteelness and sensibility of a woman. Oh, my so God, going, a, complete, a complete mixed mix sex, not even mixed race, mixed sex. I know an Aphrodite. <laughs> oh, that's, a, that's, a, that's an insult in half. There you go, a hermaphroditical character. Yeah, that's the word. Remy. Say it again. <laughs> her, hermaphrodite. Right, so if a if an amphibian, like a salamander, and I don't want to use this terminology, but if, if you can reproduce with yourself, you're a hermaphrodite, right? Right. So so what, what else? Here's some other examples that Adams, when he was vice president, there was a discussion that he was, some, some people say he was preoccupied with titles. Well, what do we call the president? Is he your excellency, the president? What do we call the vice president? Some might say we're a democracy, sir. Uh, you know, we don't want to, we're not in England. We don't give titles. We don't have aristocracy. And, and Adams uh, got caught up a little bit with, uh, you know, the proper terminology and decorum and procedures, right? So he was criticized as being, and let me find it if I can, where I put it, but uh, as, as being, it'll come back to his rotundity, Lord Rotundity, Baron Rotundity. He's a big guy and an interesting character. So, so all kinds of names in the papers. And the other thing I want to read, and if you go to the website and see links, because instead of hearing me talk, you can actually read this material. So there's a letter which I thought was interesting dated September 4th of 1800. And this is one of the indirect ways that they would campaign. So this is a letter that, that Jefferson writes to a fellow Virginian, and that Virginian presumably uh, leaked it to the press, or maybe Jefferson permitted him to do it, it's not clear. And this sort of summarizes what Jefferson's thinking is. So I'm going to read you from this letter, which you can see in, in its entirety on the website, sachetonstories.com. So this is a letter, September of 1800. And I actually have a picture of the letter, because I happen to have acquired, and I paid next to nothing for it, a, a newspaper from that time frame, where you can actually see a picture, not just the text, but you can see the picture of the actual newspaper that I'm reading from. So here it goes. This is Jefferson describing what he's all about. And he says, the great question which divides our citizens, and this is right before an election, is whether it is safest that a preponderance of power 
should be lodged with the monarchical or the Republican branch of our government. So he's referring to the Federalists as the monarchical branch and his party as the Republican branch of our government, question mark. He says, temporal panics may produce advocates for the former opinion, even in this country. So when you've got panics, when you're in a place where you think you might be going to war, then people would be interested in the monarchical or the extreme political power of one party. So he's saying that, yes, because it looks like we we're going to go to war with France, people are supporting the Federalists. But he says, but the opinion will be short-lived as the panic with the great mass of our fellow citizens. There is one circumstance which will always bring them to the right. So brings them to the right, not meaning left or right, but what will bring citizens to the right side of the decision-making? And he says a preponderance of the executive over the legislative branch cannot be maintained by, but by immense patronage. And uh, you don't need me to tell you this, Manny, but your station is a conservative, a, a proud conservative radio station. No, nah, just this hour. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's really bizarre because you know, obviously since we're a small, tiny station— our programming changes all the time because everybody's a volunteer. But yeah, during this hour, um, even when I, when I work up to coming to you, my persona says the same. But yeah, my per- show is conservative. But the truth is, uh, the Statutes and Stories Hour is history. So I just come from a conservative mindset. But the truth is, most of the time I'm learning from you. So I really, you know, I tone down my opinions. I just joke that way but and i agree that the, the section stories hour is all about the politics of the past right the politics right. of 200 years ago and the, it's and, more of a history lesson more than it's politics you know right. i mean it, 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 the, the subject is politics but yeah we're all learning from you more than anything you're okay, you're well, our, right, you're our yeah, teacher <laughs> so what i'm going to read now from this jefferson letter a lot of this, you're going to raise your hands and you're going to hoot and holler and you're going to agree because you're going to say that this is Republican, modern Republican thinking. And Jefferson, there are things that are Democratic, you know, the Democrats would like about Jefferson. There are things that Republicans will like about Jefferson. What I'm about to read to you uh, will we'll get your attention and you're going to love it. So sit back. You ready? All right. So Jefferson's describing, you know, what is his policy and what is he interested in doing? So let me continue reading. So he describes the following. There is one circumstance which will always bring them to the right. A preponderance of the executive over the legislative cannot be maintained but by immense patronage. So what he's saying is that what supports a a king, what supports an aristocratic form of government is by immense patronage. What does he mean by that? He keeps reading, keeps writing. By multiplying offices, making them very lucrative by armies, navies, etc., which may enlist on the side of the patron all of those he can interest and their families and connections. So basically what he's saying here is that under the Federalists, we built up a bureaucracy of federal employees, and we ramped up to go to war with the French because there was a war basically taking place in the Caribbean where French ships and American ships were fighting with each other, and Hamilton was brought back in. We talked about this before as the second-in-command to be in charge of the Army, and uh, Washington was brought out of retirement, although he never actually fought. This is in the 1898 time frame, but he was brought in to be the commander-in-chief with Hamilton as his as, as a number one assistant, the second-in-command, because they thought they were you know, gearing up to go to war with France. So what Jefferson is saying is that what supports the monarchical, meaning the Federalist branch, the Federalist kind of a system, is when you have lots of, and I can give you the counter-arguments, but when you have lots of patronage, so the Federalists need patronage, and Jefferson is interested in reducing patronage. So I'm continuing with his letter, and he goes on to say, let's see, but these expenses must be paid by the laboring citizens. So if we have to have a big army and a big navy and, uh, you know, big 
big uh, banking system and federal employees. Who, who has to pay for that? So he says expenses must be paid by the laboring citizen. He cannot long continue, therefore, the advocate of opinions, which to say only the least of them doom the laboring citizen to toil and sweat for useless pageants. And that's a big difference between Jefferson and the Federalists. The Jefferson, you know, and I'll give you an example. When he's inaugurated, he does not take a carriage. He walks. He doesn't want Washington, you know, that sounds very uh, Democratic Party, but now both parties are doing it. So, because both Obama and and Donald Trump walked their inaugurations. So that's right. So today, I think they, they both do it. But uh, Washington had a fancy set of horses and a carriage that would escort him. So he doesn't view himself as a king, but you know he thinks there's a certain formality and a special. Yeah, a certain decorum, I guess. Decorum. So Jefferson was not interested in the decorum that Adams and Washington wanted. And so Jefferson dressed very plainly, and there's a story, which I don't have in the Post, but I remember reading it in the past, about how when the English ambassador met with Jefferson, Jefferson's wearing sandals and he's dressed very informally. And the English ambassador thought that Jefferson was purposely insulting him, you know, by showing contempt and disrespect, but that was Jefferson being Jefferson, right? So Jefferson, by his nature, is not interested in displays of... Of um, you know pomposity. Well, he doesn't even mention it on his gravesite. <laughs> so on his gravestone, he doesn't. You're right. He doesn't. Jefferson does not mention that he was president. Yeah, only he president said, of uh, University of Virginia, I suppose. He was the president and founder of University of Virginia. He was the draftsman of the. And this is another issue in the election of the Virginia statute for for religious liberties. I forgot the name of the statute, but the the law protecting religious liberties. And that was another. Uh, we can go back and talk about that campaign. Jefferson was criticized by the Federalists and by those who were religious, by Baptist preachers and others in some of the newspapers, as being an atheist. So Jefferson was being attacked as an atheist, whereas Adams. Uh, you know, who was a uh, you know pretty strict Puritan, or well, I shouldn't say Puritan, but Puritanical. You know, a um, you know, uh, I have to double check his specific. I don't know if he's Episcopalian, but you know, he's a he's a, a religious Protestant. So you know, the the religious voters were going after Jefferson for not being religious. And as you know, Jefferson was interested in the separation of church and state. He wanted government. Yeah, he's the one who he's the one who wrote the letter to the uh, uh, to the ministers, the Baptist ministers, I believe. Where uh, he he described the separation as a green hedge, so it was not it wasn't supposed to be it was supposed to be a, a organic. It wasn't supposed to be concrete or steel or fence. It was a hedge that would elapse. Uh, no, sorry, that it would evolve over time. It could be seen through. It had a certain life to it, and I think uh, the progressives in the modern era turned it into the separation of church and state when, in fact, it's not listed anywhere in the Constitution or in any of our laws. Uh, it was just a letter, and it was Jefferson to, I'm not, I think it was like, a, I don't think it was Baptist. I think it was uh, consistent with his faith, even even though you're saying he wasn't very religious. But I do remember it was a green hedge of separation to symbolize. As opposed to a wall. As opposed so to firm, made- impenetrable, you know. Supposed to be forgiving and organic and allowed to evolve, and I always felt that there was a hierarchy there because church came first. So I always felt it was church from state, meaning church is first. Our right to express ourselves in in the public square was first and cannot be abridged upon. We're seeing that today. I don't care what pandemic is out there. We should have and always should be have the right 
uh, by choice to go to our churches and be close together or far apart, regardless of what the state thinks about that. So I always felt that the church came first before the state, but that's up for debate. Much of drove, much of drove uh, Alexander Hamilton crazy, reducing the size of the government. buy it, what mandates that you can conquer territory? It's a given, right? If it's not listed, then you can do it. <laughs> so, so Hamilton 
Hamilton's view was if we went to war, and he wasn't necessarily advocating it, he just realized it was a possibility. If you went to war, then under international law, you have the right to territory that you conquer. So, uh, you know, but for Jefferson, if it's not specifically enumerated, and Madison too, if it's not specifically enumerated in the Constitution, you can't do it, right? So, but Jefferson was pragmatic, and he realized it was a wonderful opportunity. So even though they don't amend the Constitution, he allows, you know, for the Louisiana Purchase, he's worried that if we don't take advantage of this, the offer may go away, and Napoleon might get replaced or change his mind. So to his credit, Jefferson agrees, even though... And he ended up being right because Napoleon was replaced. <laughs> eventually he does lose uh, and get put out, but it's not for another uh, several more years before yeah. before uh, he has his Waterloo. and Right, escape. but the money was for that, wasn't it? He wanted to sell Louisiana because he needed the money for his war effort in, back in France. That's right. He needed it for the war effort. And also you had the revolution in Haiti. And Haiti is sort of following our democratic tradition of trying to put in place and throw out the French and the slavery of the French and the French aristocratic system. So once he realizes that it's not so easy to re reclaim and to win back Haiti, he's willing to get rid of it, sort of throws down his hands and says, you know what, I don't need any of this. So he's willing to sell all of the territory because the profit center for him was Haiti made a lot of money when you don't have to pay wages to the workers who are working in Haiti. Really? Slaves who are working in Haiti. All right, so here are some more examples, and I'll do some quotes about Burr. So here are some good quotes. Let's see. When Jefferson gets elected, he gives his inauguration. And I mentioned this before, but I want to repeat it again. So the plain-clothed Jefferson who walks to his inauguration, he says, quote, we are all Republicans, we are all Federalists. And that's something I think that people can take away. People can also take away, before I do some of these Burr quotes, even though Jefferson and Adams were rivals, after they had served out their term as president, so after Jefferson is president, after you know Jefferson lives for a while longer, he strikes up a relationship with Adams. Adams is in Braintree, Massachusetts, and Jefferson is in Monticello in Virginia, and they write to each other. And yeah, they were the, the greatest pen pals ever. They died on the same day, my God. That's right. They become pen pals, and and I haven't read all of it, obviously, but I like to from time to time. And there are books that have been written going into the depths and the, the you know the beauty and the um, you know the breadth of the extraordinary intellect and learning and wisdom of those two founders who were rivals. You know where they talk about all all kinds of subjects, talking about art and talking about literature and talking about plays and talking about political systems and the Greeks and you name it. All right, so I encourage folks, if you wanted to read some good correspondence, the correspondence between Adams and his wife, Abigail Adams is good. Also, the correspondence between Jefferson and Adams is phenomenal. So here I have now opened the book, and this book is Alexander Hamilton by Richard Brookheiser, a very uh, accomplished Hamilton uh, uh, biographer who also wrote about Gruvner Morris. Let me find some of these quotes I have uh, marked by yellow stickies. Here we go. All right, so, Hamilton not only teared down Burr, he made the case for Jefferson. Here's some quotes. Okay. He writes to Gruvner Morris on Christmas Day about Burr. Hamilton says, Burr has no principle, public or private, and will listen to no monitor but his ambition. He is sanguine enough to hope everything, daring enough to attempt everything, wicked enough to scruple nothing. So Hamilton, who personally got along with Burr, they could work together in a, in a trial, right? We, well, one of these days we'll talk more about the trial of Levi Weeks, which was also in the year 1800. So Hamilton, when he needed to, he could work well with Burr, but he understood at the end of the day, if given an opportunity, Burr had no scruples. Here's some more. To James Bayard, uh, Hamilton writes, and this is a Delaware congressman in December of 27th, he writes, Burr is a, quote, 
voluptuary by system with habits of expense that can be satisfied by no fair expendients. These are old words. A daring and energy must be allowed him, but these qualities under the direction of the worst passions are objections, not recommendations. So he's ultra ambitious. He likes to spend money. He's got passions. He also cheats. Um, so that gives you some idea. So skipping ahead, what winds up happening in 1804, four years later? So Burr loses the, um, the, the tie election, or it's called a constructive election when it goes into the House. So between Jefferson and Burr, the president and vice president, Burr loses. So he becomes vice president. And what do you think is going to happen between that relationship with Jefferson and his vice president, where Jefferson, you know, where Burr doesn't step down, Burr contests it, right? That lets it go into the House through 36 separate ballots over a week. What do you think is going to happen between that relationship with Jefferson and his vice president? That's going to be toxic, right? But even more toxic is the relationship with Hamilton and Burr. And Burr presumably blames Hamilton, that Hamilton cost him the presidential election, forced him to be vice president. So what happens in 1804? I think it's July 11th of 1804. Oh, uh, you got Seahawk in New Jersey? Um, no idea. The famous, the famous end. How does uh, Hamilton meet his... Oh, oh, the duel, the duel. The duel. So yeah. Hamilton, so this is the election of 1800, where Hamilton throws his support behind Jefferson, even though Jefferson is a rival. Burr then only gets to be vice president. And uh, over the next couple of years, things continue to get worse. And then finally, there is a duel in the July and the summer of 1804. And uh, we can talk one day about the, the duel, but Hamilton is killed in that duel. And that brings us, I think, Manny, to the end of the hour. Yes, no, you actually have, uh, I have, that uh, you have like six more minutes. Uh, why, why are you already at eight? Oh, I, I'm, were, I, I believe, I believe yep. that, see, the phone will tell us because that's satellite. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, you got six more minutes by phone. You have eight more minutes by me on my, on my, on my watch. And uh, uh, I can interrupt you here if you, if you uh, would like to get a sip of water. But the, to go back to the black smoke and the white smoke, it was the ballots in the beginning and wet hay to create the black smoke. But the truth is that as modern times started approaching, people were noticing and confusing that the wet hay was creating gray smoke, not black smoke. So they went to chemicals. Uh, someone just came up with, I guess, potassium percolate, arthacane, and sulfur to create the black smoke and the white smoke during the concave, which is when the 117 uh, bishops uh, courted themselves away from the public and, and and debate who's going to be the next pope. They need 77 votes. So the white smoke became potassium chlorolate, lactose, and rosin. None of these chemicals other than the potassium can I fathom or understand, but uh, it turns out that the, the, the burning of the ballot continued, but it's mixed with these chemicals, and uh, that created the black and the white smoke in particular during the concave, the conclave with an L, conclave of voting for the Pope. So anyway, continue. you got five more minutes. Okay, so I was not managing our time, so let me give you some more really granular details. So what else does the 12th Amendment say? And as originally written in the Constitution in Article 1, I'm sorry, Article 2, Section 1, so Article 1 is the legislative, Article 2 is the executive. So originally it would be the five highest vote counters. The five highest votes would go over to the House and they contested election, which is called a constructive election. The 
Twelfth Amendment changed it to the top three. So if you ever have a contested election, the top three go over into the House. Now, what about vice president? What if you have a tie for vice president? And the answer is, and it would be very difficult to figure out how that could happen, but if there's a tie, the Constitution still says, instead of the House, take a guess, where does the tie go if you have... It goes to the Speaker. It goes to where? Oh, no, the Speaker is death. Uh, I thought the Speaker of the House becomes president if president and vice president are killed. Right, so that's succession, right? Yeah, that's succession. But if if you have a tie during an election, the Electoral College, and the, the vice presidents are tied... How do you resolve the tie? And the quick answer is it's the opposite of the House. Instead of going to the House, it goes over to the Senate. Oh, wow. That's a, that's news to me. That's nice to know. So if you had a tie here, I'm you know, playing a crazy scenario. No, no, you're trying to... You're trying to you, nah, 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 right? nah. You're trying to rig this... For president, it goes to the House. You're trying to rig this election. I know what you're doing. You're using Blink Radio to rig the election to benefit Biden. It would go to the Senate. The House <laughs> is controlled by one party. Yeah, and McConnell, and McConnell would have to win re-election to decide this election. <laughs> so let me give you another little oh, detail here. God. So I want you to get into the head of a member of the House in 1800 who's now voting, Jefferson or Burr. So the Federalists, this is the lame duck Federalists. They have to decide Jefferson or Burr. And, you know, they know that Burr can be manipulated to accomplish what they want because he's more, you know, he's more flexible, right? And they want to undermine Jefferson. So that's why some of them are voting for Burr. But there's also an interest in if you can't resolve that, that continued for a couple more months or for a whole year or two, who, what's the Constitution say? And I think it still says it. I have to double check. Who is in control if you have a tie between the two candidates in the House? Who gets to be president in the interim? And you want to take a guess? I have no idea. The Speaker of the House? <laughs> so well, one option would be the um, you know the incumbent president. So does Adams get to stay president if you have a tie between Jefferson and, and uh, Burr? That's one way it could be done. Does the tie go to the, uh, the incumbent president gets to stay there as a caretaker? Or you know, what else happens? Who else gets to be president? And the quick answer, and I want to make sure I read it correctly, in the event of a tie in the House, in the constructive election, so who gets to be the caretaker? The... Want to think of any more guests? So it could be the president. Could be the well, Senate president, too. Because um, these are title bearers. Uh, geez, uh, who else would be third in command in the executive branch? Uh, so the Speaker of the House is a good choice. You give me some more options about what would happen if you have a tie when it goes to the House and you have a tie in the uh, House. You know, the, sen- the, the Senate president, which was which I don't know if it was the vice president back in those days. Was the vice president serving as Senate president back then or no? Like it is today? The vice president is the head of the Senate. That's right. But it was it way back then too? And I'm, that I don't know. Yes. So back then, the person who would, if you have a deadline. So Adam's vice president. Oh, my God. my Adam's vice president was Jefferson. Adam's vice president was Jefferson. So, so he would, sta- he would stay as president. <laughs> That's another theoretical possibility. If the House is deadlocked, either the president stays president or the vice president gets to be president. Right? As caretaker. But back then, the way it worked is that the secretary of state gets to be president. So during the deadlock. As so, a guardian. Unbelievable. So John Marshall, here's a, we'll end with this. John Marshall at the time was the Federalist Secretary of State. Right, so the Federalists had an objective of maybe continuing because you know either way they don't like Burr, they don't like Jefferson, but if they can't resolve it in the House, 
Marshall, the Secretary of State, is a Federalist. So this gets into how politics can be really crazy, and that's why you had to fix the Electoral College in the 1800s because the, the system didn't understand political parties. And we fixed it, and I would argue we haven't totally fixed it. There's some more fixing that could be done. But you know, this exposes that it's, you know, we're imperfect. The Constitution isn't perfect. They, they improved it with the 12th Amendment. You know, who knows? What, what'll well, I mean, go- think about the, three, the two amendments we needed just to resolve the issue over slavery when the South just wouldn't cooperate even after losing the Civil War. You had to pass constitutional amendments, take senators away from them as as a losing South in order to pass the the constitutional amendment. I think it was 13 and 14, correct? That's right. 13th eliminated slavery. 14th Amendment gave rights to the former slaves and to people who were born and naturalized. Yes. And then the 15th Amendment. So 13th is ending slavery, 14th is equal protection due process, and then the 15th says that you can't be denied the voting, gives the right to vote to former slaves. 13, 14, 15 are the civil rights. Yeah, right. so there were three, yeah. And that would be the end of the story. There you go. Well, many appreciate it once again. Uh, thanks and uh, congratulations uh, you know, to our country, and uh, we pay honor and respect uh, to those who uh, serve for Memorial Day. Yes, absolutely. Take care, my friends. And stay free. We're now going back to being just black and blue with Van Halen. WSQF Blink Radio.